Welcome to the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage listeners, especially our Baptist listeners, to think deeply and clearly. Think about their faith, think about their church, think about their life, and think about God. We're analytic, Baptist, and confessional. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the episode. Welcome once again to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am your host, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am sitting alongside my right-hand man, or I guess my left-hand man in this scenario, Brandon Askew. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. I am you know, I feel like I'm getting better at the podcast thing <laughs> than I used to be. I think our first couple episodes might have some rough edges, but hopefully in the future we get better at this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere to go but up. So. That's right. And I, I think we're getting pretty good at the interview game, too, because we've had... I think two interviews now. Yep. We've got a third one uh, on tap and actually a fourth one scheduled as well in a, I think another week or two. Yep. So pretty excited about what's coming down the pipe for us. Hopefully you all benefit from uh, the things that we're covering here and that you enjoy them. Today we plan on discussing confessional theology. That's the third aspect of what our podcast is trying to zero in on. So we had talked about analytic theology, we talked about Baptist theology, and now we just wanted to discuss a little bit about confessional theology. So I don't think personally I knew what confessional theology was until oh gosh, I mean it was somewhere in seminary. Um, I don't know if that's the same. Similar uh, yeah, for you. definitely the same for me. Yeah, I was not uh, raised in a confessional church at all, so um, it's relatively new to me as well. I mean, I was a member of a Baptist church my whole life, but I, the Baptist faith and message was kind of a footnote and not really ever used. Right. Yeah. Same here. So, I guess to to jump right in, maybe we should kind of give a little bit of a definition or a, an idea of what it means to be confessional. Now, do you have kind of an idea for yourself what that might be? Yeah, so I wanted to I wanted to start with uh, scripture. So um, when I think um, confessionalism, and, you know, a confession of faith, I, I think first um, Jude chapter three. I mean Jude verse three, since there's only one chapter, um, where he says um, he exhorts you know Christians to uh, contend for the faith that was once delivered uh, to all the saints. And then I also think um, about Paul's words to Timothy, Second uh, Timothy one. 13 and 14, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love uh, that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we see here from these two passages that there's a, a faith that's been once once delivered and then there's a, a good deposit um, that has been um, that's been given um, through the apostles. So. I think that seems to assume that there is um, one faith that's given to us in the scriptures and that it's clear enough there in the scriptures for us to, you know, kind of extract it um, and then summarize it um, and systematize it, which is basically what a confession of faith is. We're saying this is what we believe the scriptures teach um, and we're going to tie ourselves to this body of teaching. And this is what we're going to publicly proclaim as what we believe the Bible teaches. So that's what I think when I think about confessionalism and confessions. Yeah, that that's helpful. I know several times the Apostle Paul in the scriptures mentions the idea of a, a, an established body of sound doctrine mm-hmm. that should be passed on and that should be guarded. And most fundamentally, I think that's the idea behind confessionalism is taking this sound body of doctrine, which is basically a systematization, if I said that right, (laughs) of the scripture's teaching into an easy format to understand and saying, Mm -hmm. this is what we think the Bible teaches. 
And we're going to use this as kind of a litmus test for sound theology so that believers and church members can learn and understand and grow and worship God rightly. Mm -hmm. And the church leaders can preach and proclaim and to, and to practice discipline rightly as well. So I think being confessional is in some ways it's a guarded or guarding activity where it helps guard the truth and soundness of scripture. So that's kind of what we think being confessional means. What might some examples of confessions be? Yeah, so we we went over this a little bit uh, in the um, the Baptist theology episode, but just to kind of um, maybe move a little bit outside of the Baptist tradition as well. I mean, some other um, confessions are going to be um, the Westminster Confession, which is um, what our Presbyterian brothers would um, hold. And we also have the 39 Articles, which is the Church of England, um, the Savoy Declarations, uh, um, closely related to the Westminster and to um, the 1689, um, and that is the Congregationalist uh, Confession. So those are some examples. And then we, uh, again, like some I said. Some old examples. Some old examples, yeah. So uh, And then, you know, some Baptist examples that, um, you know, we did discuss in the last episode, um, both, the, both the London Confessions, the uh, first and second in 1644 and 1689. And then there's the, um, I guess, the Americanized versions of the London Confession, which would be the Philadelphia Confession and the Charleston Confession. Um, just minimal changes there, pretty much the same. You have the New Hampshire Confession. Um, all of these are kind of in the particular Baptist stream. And then... Um, uh, the General Baptist. Which particular Baptist, General Baptist, remind me, what are those two things? Yeah, so a particular Baptist is going to be someone who um, believes in particular redemption and that Christ, um, he died for the elect. Um, and uh, he, he came you know, on a specific mi- uh, mission to save his sheep. Um, the General Baptists are going to believe that Christ died in an indiscriminate way for every person uh, who has ever lived and ever will live. And then it is uh, up to them to accept that uh, sacrifice. Would you say that's a, yeah, I think that's fair. And I think obviously our, our beliefs would say that that's challenging to believe that on several grounds, at least logically, theologically uh, among others, pastorally too, I think even uh, though I do think it's often spun as if, those who hold to particular redemption rather than universal redemption have the pastoral problem. But I think it actually can be reversed in many ways. Yeah. And I'm sure in a future episode, we'll get, you know, more uh, in depth on, on that debate between, Good. you yes. know, particular redemption and um, you know, unlimited atonement versus limited atonement, you know, depending on how you want to word it. But um, all that to say that the general Baptists had a couple of confessions of their own. I believe one of them was the Orthodox Creed, which was in 16, oh, maybe 78, I think. Sounds right. Um, that may be. Go for it. It may be a little bit off, but you can Google it. Um, and uh, moving ahead a little bit, you have the New Hampshire Confession, which is uh, more in the stream of the particular Baptists. And then uh, as you move into the 20th century, you have the 1925 and 1963 versions of the Baptist faith and message. And then that has more, most recently been uh, revised and updated to the Baptist faith and message 2000, which is what the Southern Baptist convention uses as its confession of faith. Yeah. I would say that's probably the one that mo- people are most 
familiar with, at least from a Baptist context. If you're more reformed in your context, you're probably more familiar with either Westminster or the Belgian, which is uh, one of the three chords of unity Mm -hmm. uh, for some of the reformed churches. So those are some examples. Why might you think that these confessions are useful? And by the way, I I just slipped my mind, but now I'm remembering let's not think that confessions just started in the 17th century. I know we've been mentioning a lot of those. Uh, There have been some more universally accepted confessions where every member of the church agreed with these, uh, such as the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, things like that are universally accepted uh, among all churches that would be Christian. Yeah, so um, actually just a couple weeks ago, I um, was trying to... um, teach our people a little bit about um, creeds and confessions. And um, so what I did was I, I told them to imagine there were seven people sitting on the front pew of the church. And one of them was a Baptist, one's a Presbyterian, one's a Methodist, uh, one was a Pentecostal, one was a Roman Catholic, one was a Jehovah's Witness, and one was a Mormon. So out of those seven people, if we ask them, you know, well, what do you believe? All of them are going to give us an answer that at least part of the answer is going to be, well, I believe the Bible. And well, that really doesn't get us anywhere because all those groups have distinctives and some of them have major differences uh, with others. So how are we really able to distinguish between this group and that group? So I explained to them, I said, well, creeds, which is what Jordan was just talking about with the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and things like that. Those are how we can distinguish between a group who is able to um, we, we say that they can take the name of Christ and, you know, they are um, able to label themselves a Christian. And that's why that the last two groups there that I uh, had represented, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they cannot affirm those early church creeds because they have very, very different belief, different beliefs about the nature of God um, compared to what the rest of the church has historically confessed. So the creeds are really used to distinguish between um, this person um, can claim the name Christian, and this person cannot. A confession is then how we would divide different groups from within Christianity. Um, so those are going to be um, more detailed. Um, and so basically, the creeds kind of set the the bar. This is you know, if it sets the bounds of orthodoxy basically. And um, the confessions are going to be, um, as I just said, a little bit more detailed, and they're going to cover a, a wide range of doctrines, uh, whereas the creeds are going to mainly be about the nature of God and the person of Christ. Yeah, that's helpful. So now I do want to talk about why they might be useful, because I think at least those who may not be convinced of it yet, those who aren't familiar with with it yet, uh, might not understand the use of such doctrines in their own Christian faith. They might have different, various objections to the use of confessions, which we'll tackle some of those, but wh- why might they be useful? Well, um, one is a word that uh, we've already used is that it it, it gives us um, doctrines in a systematic way. Um, and, you know, scripture does not give us doctrines in that way. I mean, we have a number of different genres in scripture, you know, from narrative to um, parables to um, songs and, you know, all different kind of proverbs, there are many different uh, letters, many different ways that information is conveyed to us from the biblical writers uh, and scripture. So an advantage of a confession is it takes that information from all of these different genres, all these different writers, from all these different eras, um, 
that um, the biblical writers are coming from. And it's going to systematize that. And it's going to say, well, this is what the Bible teaches about God. This is what the Bible teaches about man. This is what the Bible teaches about sin, about Christ, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the church. And it's going to help us to process um, exactly what scripture teaches on a given topic uh, in an easier way. Yeah. So in being systematic, hopefully it's analytic in a way by clarifying uh, what we believe. It's clarifying the difficult points of doctrine. And I think it's also helping to clarify first order versus second order doctrines. Yeah. So it's going to remind us of the things that are important and then the things that are not as important. So if there's an area of doctrine that's not found in your confession, then there can be a lot of debate and discussion and disagreement on that. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. So I think it helps people to learn how to love one another and be, and to understand that they don't have to go a hundred miles an hour at every single doctrinal issue that they encounter. Yep. I think that's really good. And you know, if there's a, if there's a doctrine that we see taught in, you know, pretty much every single confession that we see, we should probably (laughs) realize that that's a non-negotiable and that's something that um, really you need to believe um, if you're going to be a Christian at all. I mean, you're going to have things like, you know, to use an an obvious example, something like, you know, there's only one God. Well, that's going to be in any Christian confession that you see. Well, that's how you, this Dr. Moeller would use the, the, the phrase theological triage. That's how, you know, that's one of the ways that we can know that that is a, a first order um, doctrine. That's something that's super important. But as Jordan just said, well, if you don't see it in a confession at all, then we're free to, um, you know, disagree and, um, you know, argue amongst ourselves about whatever right. the, the discussion may be. Yeah, that's good. And I know you mentioned Dr. Moeller's theological triage, and I think that's a super useful way to kind of understand different importances of doctrine. So in the, in the center of that triage, you've got things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed that are universally accepted among every Christian faith and practice. So if you disagree with that, then you are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And then outside that, the bigger circle, you might have your confession. So those things that are distinctive of your own denomination or your own local church, and those are going to be much more uh, tightly held than things that are outside of your confession. So there's like a third uh, area that is, it's important, yes, all things about God are important, but it's just not to that level of we should be not members of the same local church at this point yeah. uh, because we disagree with this. So that's kind of the first, I guess, benefit or use of confessions and being confessional. What else might be a benefit or a use of being confessional? Well, another one I think is that it unites, well, it, it unites the church in two different ways. Number one, it unites your church to um, the history of the church and to uh, the global church today in, in a way that um, you may not be able to to do without confessions, but it also it's going to unite um, your church body um, to itself. So I want to read a quote here from B.H. Carroll, who was the first president at Southwestern Seminary. He says, uh, a church with little creed is a church with little life. The more divine doctrines a church can agree on, the greater its power and the wider its usefulness. The fewer its articles of faith the fewer its bonds of union and compactness. The modern cry, less creed and more liberty, is degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish. It means unity uh, and less morality and means more heresy. 
Uh, definitive truth does not create heresy. It only exposes and corrects. Shut off the creed and the Christian world will fill up with heresy, unsuspected and uncorrected, but nonetheless deadly. So what Carol's saying there is that this common cry that we hear, you know, that, you know, um, less creeds and, and more liberty or, um, you know, no creed, but Christ, um, more deeds, less creeds, those kind of things, you know, that's actually that we're moving in the wrong direction when we're saying stuff like that. The more robust a confession that we have, the more united our church is to one another. And, um, you know, because we, we're in, um, we share this common confession and we have this stuff that, uh, these doctrines that we can say, look, I believe this, you believe this, this is kind of like, a, it can be a, a starting point for, you know, uh, discipleship and all kinds of different things, but also it protects us from, you know, moving off into heresy. So that's one of the biggest benefits I think of, um, not only subscribing to a confession, but actually making it an active and visible part of your church. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And I know you mentioned the word unify, and one of the easiest ways for confessions uh, and creeds to help unify a church is simply to to recite them together on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of churches may think that's weird or awkward or odd, but I love the way Carl Truman responds to that question. When asked if that's weird or awkward or odd, we shouldn't do that. That's, you know, going above scripture or something strange like that. He, he asks, well, do you sing songs? Well, why don't why don't we just put melody to to this confession or this creed? Would would you do it then? If if you turned it into a song, would you be cool reciting it at that point? Right. And I think that kind of gets the point across of really well, you already do it, and most of the songs you're singing are have a lot less depth and precision and clarity than these confessions do. And when you do this as a church, I know my church here in Raleigh does it. Uh, we recite things like the Apostles' Creed together, and not only does it teach people, sound doctrine, but it unifies us because we're all confessing together the same beliefs, saying, I believe these different things. So I think confessions, creeds are super helpful in helping to unify the church. But I don't think they just clarify. I don't think they just unify. I think they also have an interesting uh, benefit in they help people to resist individualism. So it reminds us that we're not just the smartest person in the world. We're not all by ourselves. We also have brothers and sisters who agree with us, and, and we're confessing the same thing alongside of them. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would add to that? Well, and not only alongside of, of them, but alongside of the ones who, who drafted that confession in the first place. I mean, it, <clears throat> that confession is, is the work of, of many different minds. It's not like one person sat down and said, Okay, this is our confession. I think that's one of the dangers with, you know, a a pastor trying to write his own confession is, you know, his blind spots are going to be, you know, well, he's not going to know that they're there, but they're going to they're going to show up in that confession. Whereas, you know, something like the Westminster Confession or, you know, any of the historic confessions, that wasn't one man. That was a large group of theologians who sat down and, you know, they hammered out all this stuff with open Bibles to try to figure out, um, you know, the best way to um, summarize what they thought scripture taught. So, you know, it's a work of many minds and they're time tested. You know, these things have, have been used as um, sort of a, I don't know which, how I want to put it. Um, Maybe like a, it gives us um, a way as a church to approach scripture, not to say that we put the, the confession over top of scripture. I mean, it's a, it's a subordinate 
standard. You know, scripture is, is still the ultimate standard, but it, it it keeps us from approaching scripture in an um, unhealthy way. Yeah, that's good. And I think another benefit, uh, a use of confessions, is simply that they help us to be honest with what we believe. I, I can imagine there have been thousands of church splits because of differences over doctrine. But if you're honest and upfront saying, this is what we believe and this is what we teach, gosh, I mean, that saves so much headache. It saves so much heartache. There's no more confusion over these different areas of doctrine. Uh, I know churches, all the, especially Baptist churches, they love to debate over Calvinism, Arminianism. They love to debate over different theological issues. But if you have a confession that explicitly explains and discusses that, that is super helpful. You're not going to have the same level of uh, infighting and, and struggle that you would have had. Yeah, and it's it's there, it's out in the open, and you know it makes you know we're saying this is what the Bible teaches, and if we have it down on paper, and you know outsiders or you know obviously the church itself, you know can can take you know the words that we've written down or the words that someone else may have written down and that we are um, now using as our own. You know that's a way we can we can verify that we can look at that paragraph or that article and say, well, all right, let's go back to the scriptures. And is this right? And, you know, when um, controversies do arise within a body or maybe within a denomination or something, that confession gives you a starting place for the debate. Okay. we, We have a clear declaration here in this article and let's use this that's kind of how we're going to sit down and figure out, um, you know, how we're going to approach this controversy rather than, you know, we don't have any common place to start. And then I'm throwing out accusations and you're throwing out accusations. You're being unbiblical. You're doing this. Whereas we can just say, okay, well, let's just take, you know, whether it be this entire paragraph or maybe this one sentence that we're you know struggling to agree over. And we can, you know, use that as kind of a jumping off point for the rest of the debate. Yeah, I think that that's really good because we all naturally are going to say, yes, we believe the Bible. But then you have to have something along the lines of, well, what do we think the Bible is actually communicating and teaching? And if we have this standard, we're able to really kind of get rid of a lot of the the challenges that come with the disagreements. And it's it's also going to benefit your average church member because you can hold your own pastors accountable. Absolutely. Um, yeah. If if they are teaching something from the scriptures that aren't in agreement with the confession, you can clearly point that out and say, look, pastor, I mean, it's clear that you have taught this, but it's in contradiction to what we as a church have said we believe. So it really limits the ability of uh, leaders in the church to almost hijack yep. doctrinal positions and move the church in a direction that is unhealthy um, and unbiblical. Yeah, yeah, it, it can definitely slow down the derailing of a of a local body because, like Jordan said, you know you have that. Um, it's, it's used as kind of a a, a check on on the pastor, you know, where you can kind of stop him. Whereas if you don't have the confession, well, whatever he says goes, and you know if he's the one that. Is up there preaching, and what exactly are you going to do if you don't have any standard to hold him to? Because so, he's just going to say he's better able to interpret the Bible than you are. So <laughs> that's a good then point. what? Then so, it's a, you know it becomes a power struggle. But yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we do say that it, it can be used, it can help churches not slide into un- unhealthy, unbiblical doctrine 
But that doesn't mean it's always going to do that because it doesn't have the same power of scripture. I mean, I can think of denominations such as the PCUSA that I think if you went, you would be amazed by some of the liturgical items that they use, some of the confessions that they claim to believe are beautiful, thick, and true. But then you actually listen to their own teachings and you find this is wildly different than what you say here in these binding confessional documents. So while it is a useful tool, it doesn't always work. But I would say that more often than not, that it is going to work, especially if you set them up and use them in the way that they were intended to be used. Mm -hmm. So those are some uses of, of confessions and being confessional. What would be some objections to this? Why wouldn't everybody just say, well, duh, that seems like a logical position. I, I should be confessional too. Well, some people will say that it, you know, it, it may lead to a, a kind of a, a dry and lifeless orthodoxy. Um, and it removes, um, you know, a true, um, the, the true movement of the spirit with, within a body. I've heard people, um, you know, make that, uh, claim before. I don't think that uh, is a necessarily a good objection. Another thing that relates to that is um, I know when Jimmy and Joe on Doctrine and Devotion were going over uh, confessions on one of their episodes, Joe mentioned that, you know, another use of a confession could be <clears throat> devotional use. And that's anything but dry. You know, if they're, um, you know, these confessions are worded in a beautiful way. So if there's you know, a particular article that's worded in a way that, you know, really speaks to your soul, you know, you can just, just kind of, um, pause and, and, and think on that and then look, go to the scripture references that are there with it. Then you're returning back to the Bible and you can, you can work through, um, your, your morning devotions that way and use a confession. So, eh, you know, anything could be used in a, in a dry way. I mean, I I don't think that that's, that's nothing inherent to confessions or confessionalism. I'm sure there are churches that are, um, you know, they could be rightly be accused of dead orthodoxy. Um, but that I don't think that's an objection that, um, you know, is, is something that applies to confessions in general. Yeah. I mean, we've got to say that it, it has everything to do with the person and nothing to do with the actual confession yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Uh, most of the time it's all about the person and how they're handling it and using it. But I would say above the dryness and archaicness of confessions that might be an objection. Probably the supreme one, especially among Baptists, is simply that they look at creeds and councils and confessions with suspicion because they think it can be wielded as a sword or tool that will subjugate Scripture and make Scripture below it. So they then say the confession is now the supreme authority when it comes to matters of faith and practice. And that's how you get weird uh, claims that come along and saying, no creed but Christ. Uh, and I think a lot of Baptists would probably resonate with that. And that makes sense in their mind. Of course, I don't want to have anything that's above or beyond Christ. But no creed but Christ is a creed. It is. And, um, you know, I was talking to our buddy Jake Stone, who's a, a Baptist pastor down in Mississippi. And who we'll he, have on the podcast, yeah, I'm he'll, sure. He'll be on soon. <laughs> and, uh, we were talking about this very thing and, you know, not to give you too much about Jake's story, but he came from, you know, an independent Baptist background. And most of those guys are, I guess they would say that they um, hold to the, the landmark tradition understanding of, 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 of Baptist identity in that there's this trail of Baptists that go all the way back through the history of the church. Well, 
We were talking Spoiler about, alert, I don't believe that to be true. Well, I don't either, but that's what <laughs> makes this next quote so interesting is he sent me this quote from James uh, J.M. Pendleton, who was a, a landmark Baptist uh, theologian, and he said, this quote is from Pendleton, he says, It is eminently proper for those who appeal to the Scriptures as a fountain of truth to declare what they believe the Scriptures to teach. To say that they believe the Scriptures to say nothing to the purpose, all will say this, and yet all differ as to the teachings of the Bible. There must be some distinctive declaration. Now, that's from that's from a landmark Baptist. So, um, even the history of the landmarks, it seems that you know they have a place for creeds. Um, so, this idea of no creed but Christ, I mean, it doesn't hold up historically, and it's just impossible to actually uphold in practice because, as Jordan just said. Um, you know, the, the, the saying no creed, but Christ is actually a creed. And as soon as, you know, a preacher gets up and and starts preaching, well, you know, if you don't have a creed or a confession, whatever he says goes. Yeah. You just suddenly had one. And and (laughs) when you don't have one in place, right. Your preacher, whatever he's saying, he's going unchecked. There is no kind of guardrail on what he's teaching or what he's thinking. And you're kind of helpless in that, in that aspect. I really just fundamentally have to say the idea that no creed but Christ, I mean, it's logically contradictory. Everyone has one. Yep. It's just whether you write it down or not. Yep. Whether and you're going to be honest about it. Yeah. yeah. So obviously I think it's better to be honest and upfront and write it down than it is to hide it and just kind of uh, whatever you say suddenly becomes what it is. Because a lot of the things that I say out of my mouth or think in my head <laughs> are not very good things. Right, yeah. uh, They're wrong uh, and need to be corrected. So there's a good use to having a sturdy foundation of this is what we believe. So, yeah, and another thing, I don't, I don't know if we, we talked about this when we were talking about advantages of, um, and, and uses of a confession, but, um, you know, these can be used as a teaching tool. So you could take a, a Sunday school class or maybe a, a Sunday night class or something, and you can use your church's confession just as the framework and, you know, kind of the schedule for how you're going to teach that class. You know, you just teach through chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and just walk right through the confession and use that as the way that you teach your people, um, the doctrines of, of, of scripture. So yeah, um, they don't have to read a systematic theology to get everything. They can right. just read their own church's confession, which is far slimmer than introducing them to the four right. volumes of Herman Bavink right. saying, you've got to read thousands of pages. Good luck. Sink or swim. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am interested, Brandon, what is your favorite confession? Now I've got a hunch, but I, I want you to yeah. go ahead. And- uh, my favorite is the 1689. What about you? I mean, I've got I've got to agree, but I've got a quick second one: the okay. abstract of principles. Mm, yeah. So the abstract of principles is the doctrinal statement of Southern Seminary, where I'm a graduate of, and pretty much also it's, southeastern. Also southeastern. I forgot yeah. about that. I'm also yeah. a graduate of southeastern, so I've got double abstract. That's right on my resume, <laughs> uh, and that's basically a very shortened uh, summary of the Second London Confession. So in a lot of ways, I think. Uh, churches that at least aren't at this stage of being self-consciously confessional, that might be a good step, mm-hmm. a good first step, because it's a lot thinner and easier to digest than is the Second London, which is very extensive. Yeah, I mean, you could fit the abstract on a page or two, I would think. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's really short. So that I think that's a good point. That's a probably a good place for people to start. And if you're more, if you're really interested in reading more about confessionalism and creeds and how that functions in the life of the church, 
you've got to read Carl Truman's The Creedal Imperative. I had planned on bringing out and quoting some of it, but I'll be honest with you, that book is somewhere packed in a box as I'm moving. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you, you need to get your hands on it and you need to read it. I think you should read everything Carl Truman writes personally. Um, but this one in particular, I think is very, very helpful and kind of setting the stage of what is confessionalism and why do we need confessions in our own local church? And he's going to give a lot of helpful illustrations, a lot of anecdotes to kind of make it clear that, and you can use that with your own church members, uh, to kind of make it plain that this is why we do this and this is how it's helpful. So the London Lyceum, we want to be analytic. We want to be clear. We want to be honest about what we believe, weigh the costs and the benefits. We want to be Baptist, uh, though we're happy to accept others outside the Baptist tradition because we have a hierarchy. You know, we, we're more uh, realizing that the Apostles' Creed is the center core of our faith, and we can affirm anyone who believes the Apostles' Creed to be a believer. So we're happy to have fellowship with them, just not in our own local church, because we have a second tier of confessions that we hold to, particularly us, the Second London Confession of Faith. So we're both, we're, I guess we're three things that wouldn't be just both. We're analytic, we're Baptist, and we're confessional. And we hope this has been kind of a good little introduction to those three things. Um, as your listeners, if you have more questions or you want more information or you want us to talk more about one of these topics or maybe one of the things inside these topics, uh, shoot us a message. Or on maybe the- we said something that was really stupid and you want to correct us. All right. So apparently Brandon <laughs> thinks I said something really stupid. But that said, feel free to tweet us, um, either one of us, or tweet the London Lyceum and let us know what we should talk about more if there's something you're really interested in. Uh, we're excited to to kind of land into some more specific issues as we go on now that we've kind of given you the broad understanding of who we are and what we are and we'll be going from there yeah man looking forward to it all right well we're excited to kind of continue to do this thing and we'll hear from you soon Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.